Acts 2, verses 1 through 21, reads, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound came from heaven like the sound of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and wondered, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Yea, and on my men servants and my maid servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and manifest day. And it shall be that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The word of the Lord. Welcome to the ninth part in our For the Life of the World series, where we are spending some time from Resurrection Sabbath until now, focusing on the implications of the resurrection for us today. Last week, Michelle shared about uh, Acts 1 and the ascension and how the disciples were cloud-gazing after Christ rose. And at that point, they were sent back to Jerusalem to pray. Now, in Acts 2, we are getting into one of the most significant passages in the history of the Christian church. And so I'm excited to share with you a little more about the life of the world today. So to start, Acts 2 is a historical account. It's really closely connected to the Gospels. In fact, most scholars connect Luke and Acts as a single book. 
They call it Luke Acts. Um, it, it has the same author. The first verses of each book, Luke 1 and Acts 1, have very similar wording. And you see that Luke is this guy trying to piece together the account to share with someone else. Also in chapter 2, uh, we see varieties of types of literature. We see kind of this historical narrative at the beginning. And then we also see some poetic prophecy quoting from the Old Testament, from Joel 2, verses 28 to 32, that passage about people seeing visions and dreaming dreams and the Holy Spirit being poured out. So that's kind of the, uh, the text of Acts 2. The context for the passage is it's taking place at Pentecost. So Pentecost is a Christian holiday that comes 50 days after the, um, the resurrection, the crucifixion weekend. Um, it coincides with a Jewish holiday known as Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, um, that was happening at that same time. And so right now, this year, uh, uh, Pentecost was celebrated on last Sunday, June 5. And so we're right in the middle of this Pentecost season. Um, but uh, Shavuot, the Jewish festival, that was uh, the Feast of Weeks, and it marked the end of the, the wheat harvest. Uh, and also in the rabbinic tradition, it doesn't say this in the Bible, but according to tradition, the covenant was given to Moses on Mount Sinai during the Feast of Weeks, during Pentecost um, in Christian terms. And so it's kind of fitting that another covenant or something new would start on this day uh, that is discussed in Acts chapter 2. A few of the themes that might come out when you're reading this passage, uh, first of all, relate to the history of the church. So Acts 2 is the inauguration of the church. The Holy Spirit comes down and is poured out for all people. God makes the invitation to everyone that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And now this word church in Greek, ecclesia, you've probably heard of that. Um, it comes from this word called. Uh, in, and Acts 11.26 is actually the first time that we see ecclesia in Acts. And the verse says, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. But I just want to make the point that before people were called Christians, the church had already started. This word ecclesia, it means the called out group. The root word kaleo means call, name, summon. And in contemporary times, the ecclesia was a group of people who were called together, invited together to discuss something, whether it was politics, philosophy, or religion. But we see this root word for church, kaleo, appear also in Acts 2. In verse 21, the verse I just ended on, uh, it says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We see that word call. Also in Acts 2.39, we see, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls 
to himself. This word call, summon, invite, describes the beginning of the church that is taking place in Acts 2. This is the start of the church. And it shows us that the church is an invitation. It's a call, a call and response between people calling to God, God calling back to people. And it all occurs in this context of what's already been done by Christ at the cross and resurrecting, and yet what hasn't been done, continuing to wait for the, for the second coming and when all is made new. Another theme that we see in Acts 2 is language and how important language is. The first gift that the Holy Spirit gives when the Holy Spirit is poured out is the gift of tongues. So that all these people, about 120, who were there, who had seen Christ ascend and that were praying together, were able to speak the languages of people from all over the world, that entire list of countries and regions that I described earlier. Without any prior training, they were able to share. And the gift of tongues was a key part of this inauguration of the Christian church. But we also see communication in general is a just really common theme throughout all of Acts 2. We see terms like prophecy, prophesy, visions, dreams. We see signs, we see wonders, and again, we see this recurring theme of the call or the invitation. All of these things are communication, words, language, emphasized in Acts 2. And so the first big question that I have for us today is why is language such a big feature in this passage? Why does language show up so much at the beginning of the church? And when I think about it, it makes some sense because language is key to a lot of things, right? For instance, language is how we see. A few days ago, I was riding here from the west side on a city bike and went past one of those little fashion boutiques that you see all over the place on the Upper East Side. And I looked in the window and I saw a rack of clothes and they were all the same color or different shades of the same color. There was a really, like a cream and then a, a slightly darker cream and a darker cream and a darker cream, maybe getting into tan, but it was just all the same color. And so I went back home and I kind of Googled like, okay, what are, what are some of the color palettes for the Upper East Side? And I found the names for some of these colors. Names like Tan Lines and Shy Boys and 36 Hours in Marrakesh. And so these boutiques look like they have just one color that they're offering, but because of language, these people are dressing in a veritable rainbow of variety of color. I'm new to New York, and I don't even live on the Upper East Side right now, so one day I'm gonna need one of you uh, who knows the colors to take me to a boutique and explain a little bit more of that to me. But one thing I can tell you is that before coming to the Upper East Side, seeing some of these color names, I never would have expected a single shade like that to have an identity of its own, a whole world of its own. But giving something a name has a way of helping you see it. 
I think this also may have something to tell us a lesson about uh, race in America. Maybe the more we get to know people from a variety of colors and backgrounds, the more human they will seem to us, the stronger their identity will appear to us. So language is how we see the world. Language is also how we improvise and design. Two of my all-time favorite books are called A Pattern Language and The Timeless Way of Building. These are both by Christopher Alexander. They're architecture textbooks. And A Pattern Language is basically a dictionary of potential design cases that you can pull together for your own design project. And the philosophy behind it is that when you build a cohesive vocabulary for a project, you can design something that has the quality of being alive, they call it, which basically means that each part contributes to the whole rather than eroding it. Each part uh, reinforces and substantiates the rest. And so having a particular vocabulary enables us to build consistently and cohesively in a particular way. So language helps us to see. Language helps us to improvise and design. Language is also how we feel. I just received this amazing book called Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown. It's sort of a dictionary or encyclopedia of emotions, probably 60 or 70 emotions listed in that book. And she goes into detail on each one describing how they interact and the importance of it. But at the beginning of the book, she opens with an introduction talking about her rationale for the book. And she cites a study that she did surveying thousands of people where she came to the understanding that most people can only name three emotions as they're going through them. Happy, sad, and angry. And the reason she wrote this book is because she thought, what a tragedy that people try to fit all of their emotional experience within just three labels. What about all the other range of emotion? Excitement, disappointment, regret, curiosity, She then quotes philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, who says, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. In Acts 2, we see some miracles happening. In Cambodia, I spent a few years in Cambodia after college. And while I was there, people around me saw miracles fairly frequently. They would talk about them, tell stories about them, record them. And during the two and a half years that I was there, I'm not really sure that I ever did see a miracle. And now I can observe this, and I can come to the conclusion that they were just making things up, that miracles aren't possible, kind of like the skeptics in Acts 2 thought, who accused the people speaking in tongues of being drunk on new wine. Or I can observe it and conclude that maybe we have different definitions of what a miracle is. Maybe my vocabulary isn't allowing me to see the miracles that are there. 
maybe people are speaking in tongues, and just like in Acts 2, I'm thinking they're drunk. The world has this tendency to beat the hope of the supernatural out of us. And this is why language is so important. The limits of my language are the limits of my world. And so maybe the problem is my language. So the question is, why is language such a big feature in this passage at the beginning of the church? And my answer would be language is how we experience the world. And God has a particular vision for how we can experience it. So this raises a second big question. If the problem is with my language, what in this passage is the language of the church all about? Verse 11 says, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So we know it's about the mighty works of God. But what would these mighty works of God have been? If we keep reading in Acts 2, we find out. Verses 22 to 24 say, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And if you keep reading in verses 31 to 33, Peter preaching goes on and he says, talking about David, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Also, in verse 36, still in Acts 2, we see, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Add to this the context that all of this is occurring at Pentecost, just 49 days after the resurrection and just over a week after Jesus had ascended into heaven after spending 40 days mingling on earth. And I think we can say that the topic on everyone's mind, especially the minds of the 120 given the gift of tongues that day, was the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection was the central assertion of Peter's speech and everyone speaking in tongues that day. This is the message that resulted in 3,000 people being baptized in a single day who then devoted themselves to studying, to fellowship, to eating, to prayer, and eventually to sharing everything in common. And so the answer to that second question is the resurrection was central to the message on the inaugural day of the church. So if language is how we experience the world and if the resurrection is central to the language of the church, it must follow that God wants us to experience the world through the lens of the resurrection. Jesus came, died, and rose, and the church was inaugurated 
so that we could experience the world through the lens of the resurrection. My third big question for today is why is the resurrection so important? Why was the church inaugurated so that we could experience life through the lens of the resurrection? And my answer is that the resurrection is important because it gives us a vocabulary to affirm life and to resist death. The Anglican theologian N.T. Wright in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, makes the point early on that resurrection was not, for people in the time of Christ, necessary to view Jesus as the Messiah. He points out that no second temple Jewish text, that is, after the first temple was destroyed and the second one was built, no second temple Jewish texts speak of the Messiah being raised from the dead. Nobody would have thought of saying, I believe that so-and-so really was the Messiah, therefore he must have been raised from the dead. Nothing in Jewish beliefs about the Jewish God and certainly nothing in non-Jewish beliefs about non-Jewish gods would suggest to devotees that they should predicate resurrection of their object of worship. So if resurrection wasn't necessary to be convicted of Jesus' divinity, why is the resurrection so important? The resurrection is important because it gave the world a clearer way of conceiving of God. It was the clearest moment in a long time that any religion had conceived of a bodily resurrection. It was the clearest moment that the afterlife became something like our life in our physical bodies today. Not more real, not less. It was the most real genuine affirmation of a life since creation. Jesus didn't transform into a spirit. Jesus resurrected with a physical body and not only set the precedent that we will also be resurrected, but illustrated the value simply of life in a body. The resurrection is important because it affirms life, but also because it resists death. Eastern Orthodox theologian Alexander Shmemon argues in his book For the Life of the World that Christianity is not a religion in the sense that it does not make sense of death. Most religions make sense of all these fundamental parts of human life, birth, marriage, death. But for Shmemon, Christianity does not make sense of death. It doesn't justify it or pretend that it's natural. He writes, Christianity is not reconciliation with death. It is the revelation of death. And it reveals death because it is the revelation of life. Christ is this life. And only if Christ is life is death what Christianity proclaims it to be, namely, the enemy to be destroyed. Christian theology does not give us a way to accept death. Death is always a tragedy. Death is the enemy. And the resurrection reiterates this point. We see in Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 15, the famous passage, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Revelation 21 verse 4 also says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. But, isn't this denial? Some people might hear what I'm saying and say that accepting death and loss is an important aspect of our mental health. Isn't this some kind of denial? And my answer to that is no. This is grief. This is real, full grief. I agree that denial isn't helpful. When someone you love has passed away, it is imperative that you come to acknowledge it. What I'm saying is that there is no theological basis to try to find comfort in the idea that this is all part of God's plan, that this is God's will. What I'm saying is that our faith should in fact drive us toward acknowledging death in our loved ones and all around us and motivate us an even greater sadness and grieving than we would if we viewed death as normal. Shmeman continues and writes, it is when life weeps at the grave of the friend, when it contemplates the horror of death, that the victory over death begins. But isn't this too much sorrow? What about the Christian hope? What about life after death? To that I say, this isn't too much sorrow. This is resilience with hope. Scripture tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. In the footnotes of the Andrews Study Bible, it notes that sorrow in this case is more literally translated as continue to sorrow. And that Christian faith does not actually preclude sorrow as a natural part of the grieving process. Rather, this verse says not to sorrow as those who have no hope. To sorrow as one who has no hope is to be forced to give in, to accept the inevitability and naturalness of death. Christians, however, grieve deeply without giving in to death, without accepting it as natural and justifiable. Ultimately, the language of the resurrection enables us to live out the truth described in Scripture, to cut through the deception and the constant beating down that we face in a world of death, and to continue to resist even as we grieve, to see things as they are, to call them by their proper names. This extends beyond our relationship to death into our interactions with each other while we live. By affirming life, we become freed to see each other for who we are. We become freed to see God for who God is. And finally, seeing each other and seeing God, we can participate in the invitation God extended to us at Pentecost, and even before at Sinai and in the Garden of Eden. We can answer each other's calls and call on each other. As I wrap up, I want to share a poem by National Youth Poet Laureate Amanda Gorman called Call Us. Gorman writes, grant us this day bruising the make of us. At times, over half of our bodies are not our own. 
are persons made vessel for non-human cells. To them, we are a boat of a being, essential, a country, a continent, a planet. A human microbiome is all the writhing forms on and inside this body drafted under our life. We are not me, we are we. Call us what we carry. Using biological metaphors, Gorman gets at the depth of what it means to be human with all of our influences, our experiences, our memories, our relationships, our hurts, and our imperfections. Everything that we bring with us into a room as someone who has lived on this planet for a decade or two or three or five or 10, all of us are carrying things with us everywhere we go. But with the resurrection lens, by affirming life, we can genuinely call each other what we carry. We can enter into relationships with each other, grieving over the past harm and resisting further harm together. God, too, carries harm. And understanding God as the suffering and grieving God and also as the victorious God gives us someone that we can call to in every experience of life. So as we participate in the church, this group continually giving and receiving invitations to gather together, the lens of the resurrection enables us to receive and extend those invitations for what they really are, calling each other what we carry, calling God what he carries, and receiving from each other and from God as one would receive an invitation from someone who carries the present knowledge of the cross and suffering, the future hope of the resurrection, and the unwavering resistance to death that comes with the resurrection lens. And so as we participate in society, we reject all notions that things cannot get better, that violence and corruption are inevitable, that laws will simply be circumvented. We grieve every loss at Buffalo, at Uvalde, and every mass shooting that has taken place day by day since around this country. We grieve every death row victim, victim to our intentional decision to kill somebody. We grieve every victim of suicide. We grieve while ceaselessly resisting further harm at every personal and systemic level. To the person with the vocabulary of the resurrection, death is heinous, awful, and always invokes grief for the abnormal abomination that it is. At the same time, the vocabulary of the resurrection gives us the hope to keep moving forward in light of an eventual resurrection and in the already accomplished defeat of death on the cross. The limits of our language are the limits of our world. And the language of the resurrection expands our world so that we can grieve simultaneously, fully, and resist death completely. This means I can feel and work. My faith can be emotional and practical. I can hope in a context of disappointment. I can persevere through unlimited failures. I can see our situation for what it is, reduced neither to denial nor to sentimentality. I can call us 
what we carry. The limits of my language are the limits of my world. And the language of the resurrection is the language for the life of the world.